This is America's Roundtable from Washington, D.C., an initiative of the U.S.-based think tank International Leaders Summit in partnership with Lancer Broadcasting Corporation and Supertalk Mississippi Media. Thank you for joining us on America's Roundtable. I'm Joel Adinsami, your co-host, joined by economist Natasha Serdorch, co-founder of International Leaders Summit and the Jerusalem Leaders Summit. America's Roundtable guests include leading voices from business, government, media, energy, technology, healthcare, and the broad policy arena. Subscribe to America's Roundtable on Apple Podcasts, Amazon, and Spotify. Visit America's Roundtable at americasrt.com. americasrt.com. Follow us on Facebook, America's Roundtable, and Twitter at americasrt. We invite donors and advertisers to reach us by visiting our website, americasrt.com. Welcome to America's Roundtable. Welcome to America's Roundtable from Washington, D.C. This weekend on America's Roundtable, we're delighted and honored to host Floor Hassan Nahum. She currently serves as Deputy Mayor of Jerusalem in charge of foreign relations, international economic development, and tourism. She's also the co-founder and founding member of the UAE Israel Business Council. In September 2023, she was appointed by the Foreign Minister of Israel as Israel's Special Envoy for Innovation. She was born in London, and Floor Hassan Nahum studied law at King's College London, and she qualified as a barrister in 1997 and practiced in London before becoming the campaign director of World Jewish Relief. And she made Aliyah with her husband in 2001, moving to Israel. And without any further delay, Madam Deputy Mayor, thank you for joining us from Israel. Good morning, Fleur. Thank you so much. Thank you, both of you. Thank you for having me on your show. Fleur, uh, four weeks ago this Saturday, Israel was brutally attacked, unprovoked, by Iran-backed Hamas terrorist group operating from Gaza. Our hearts go out to the victims of the horrible terrorist attacks on October 7. In the worst single-day tragedy since the Holocaust, Israel lost 1,400 lives. Over 4,500 Israelis were wounded. There are over 240 hostages still in Gaza that were taken captive by Hamas and Palestinian Islamic Jihad, and among them babies, children, and elderly. There were 260 young people who were murdered while attending a music concert. Fleur, you visited Be'eri, one of the kibbutzim, in southern Israel yes. that was the scene of the horrific massacre by Hamas on October 7. Uh, could you walk us through that horrific day and share with us your own experiences as well as what you witnessed in Beiri Kibbutzim? So it was, a, it was supposed to be a day of a Jewish uh, holiday. It, ironically, it's a day is called Simcha Torah, which means in Hebrew, uh, be, be, be joyful with the Torah because it's the day when we complete the five books of Moses that we read every week in synagogue on, on Sabbath. And then we start the new, the new year. Um, I was home with my four kids. My husband was, was in hospital with his father, actually. And we woke up to sirens. Now, sirens are very rare in Jerusalem. Because we have such a large Muslim population here, normally, even when there's a war with Hamas, and this is the fifth war with Hamas, they don't really send too many rockets here to Jerusalem because they're, they're scared that they might hit the mosque or, or, or a neighborhood which is predominantly Arab Muslim. And so that morning, uh, we woke up with a siren 
I rushed with my four children into a shelter, our shelter of our home. And then there was another siren and another siren. Now, five sirens in a row, I knew something was up. I'm Sabbath observant, so I'm normally not on my phone on the Sabbath, but I knew something terrible had happened. So I switched on my phone and I saw uh, a, a massacre taking place in real time. You have to understand that people were calling into the TV stations, telling us what was happening. Um, but the most shocking thing of all is that we didn't understand where the security forces were. It was, I'd, until this day, we really don't know what happened there, but we could feel in real time we, what was going on and what went on was a most brutal massacre, something we've never seen in this territory. We've had wars, we've had losses. We've always, uh, never, we've never started a war, but we won them all because we have no choice. Everything is existential in this country. All your neighbors want to destroy you. You have to win, otherwise you're destroyed. And so we were really in shock and trauma by the level of brutality. I mean, every day we're discovering more and more horrific details of that massacre, including yesterday the reports that a baby was found burnt in an oven. So imagine the trauma that that brings up for Jewish people from the Holocaust. Um, and there's just, and they documented everything, the terrorists. So it's inescapable what was done there, what they did. Uh, they were all high on some type of amphetamines that created the stimulation for them to want to kill. But, you know, we talk about people who've been brainwashed since they're born, dehumanizing Jewish people, that we're not people, we're not, we're animals. And so this is what transpired after years of this brainwash and planning, as you well said, Natasha, by Iran, who is the big puppet master in this region. And so we spent two, three days in full depression, trauma, disbelief. And then after that, you know, uh, defiance kicks in and resilience. And we started immediately uh, figuring out what we needed to do uh, to help the evacuees from these communities that have been burnt and, and slaughtered. And so Jerusalem now is ironically one of the biggest refuge cities in the country. We have people in 70 hotels. We have, you know, psychotrauma help that we're facilitating. Uh, we opened up makeshift schools in hotels. We're trying to help these people, you know, first of all, escape the war zone that they're in, not just from the south, but now from the north as well, with Hezbollah throwing rockets and trying to give them, especially young families, some type of normalcy uh, from these terrible, horrible Holocaust-like events. Uh, so that's where we are right now. In fact, uh, Madam Deputy Mayor, we have seen the numbers. There are over 200,000 individuals, Israelis, that have actually been evacuated from yep. the northern part of Israel, as well as uh, closer to the Gaza area in central yep. and southern Israel. So this is a significant number of people that have been displaced internally. Yep. And uh, it, it is important to understand that they have all converged, as you've mentioned, to Jerusalem. And we certainly understand the important role that America is playing today in supporting Israel. 
well. Yes. And we've been appreciative of America's elected officials at the federal level, at state level, state governors, state senators have also stepped in and conveyed their support for Israel for the long haul. Yes. And we have been concerned about these growing calls within America from certain corners for a ceasefire. And this past week, for the very first time, President Joe Biden uttered these words after a protest uh, where a gentleman called for an immediate ceasefire. And Joe Biden said, and I quote, I think we need a pause. And when asked what a pause meant, Biden said it was time to get the prisoners out, a reference to the captives held by Hamas, the group that rules Gaza, and the White House clarified that later. In fact, we all know what transpired in Iraq, Afghanistan, when American troops were on the ground. Yeah. And in fact, U.S. generals once serving in these areas remember the experience of, of Mosul and Fallujah, and it certainly takes a long time uh, and street battles to really root out and they did root out ISIS and other terror groups. And from your perspective, Floor, why is a ceasefire a non-starter for Israel's government when facing a barbaric force such as the Hamas and the Palestinian Jihad? Well, first of all, you mentioned the hostages, and I have to really mention them. We have 240 people there among some five-month-old babies, nine-month-old babies, small children, young girls that we have reports of being serially raped. We have elderly women in wheelchairs with Alzheimer's disease. It's really unconscionable what's going on. And, you know, the world shouldn't be confused. Bad people take babies as hostages and the elderly. There's no confusion. There's no nuance. And there shouldn't be. Uh, and I'm very grateful to, for the work you're doing and for the American government, who from the beginning, Joe Biden was unequivocal in calling out this evil. If we thought the ceasefire would help bring our hostages home, uh, would help uh, some of the innocent people living in Gaza to get the help they need, maybe it would be something to consider. But even... Um, former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton said two days ago that a ceasefire will only help Hamas regroup, rearm, and come and attack us stronger. So why would a country defending itself and trying to rescue its own people, why would a country give the enemy an advantage? Because that's what's going to happen with the ceasefire. Humanitarian aid is going in to Gaza all the time. A hundred trucks a day. And now we don't even know whether that humanitarian aid is going to the innocent people in Gaza or has been stolen by Hamas to keep their infrastructure of terror, underground infrastructure of terror going. So we don't even know what's happening to the food. Why would we give a ceasefire to allow these brutal genocidal terrorists to regroup and attack us again? We would have to be suicidal. I mean, it, there should be an easy solution when you think about unconditional surrender of Hamas, unconditional surrender of terrorists, plus release of all hostages to talk about any ceasefire. Absolutely. Which is, you know, why don't we put more burden on them, basically? If they want peace and prosperity, if they want attacks to stop, Hamas should be eliminated and hostages returned. It's the only option. Just like America knew um, after 9-11 and subsequently when they entered the war in Afghanistan that you have to eliminate ISIS. Just as America knew that, just as the world supported America, or at least the free world, 
then everybody has to let Israel eliminate the, the, the threat of Hamas, which is the long arm of Iran. And Iran, let me remind everyone, has big ambitions. They don't start and stop in the Middle East. They want the whole free world. They want to turn the whole free world into and bring us back 500 years into a caliphate with zero rights for women, for LGBT community, for men, no freedom of speech, no freedom of the press. This is what people, this is what people are supporting when they say free Palestine. Now, if people really care about the Palestinian people, what they should do is, is help them rid themselves of this terrible genocidal regime that is controlling their lives and that is putting them, putting them as human shields in front of a defensive war that Israel is fighting. Now, Iran's Supreme Leader Khamenei is now calling on Muslim states to seize oil and food exports to Israel, demanding an end to the bombardment of the Gaza Strip, as they claim. They continue to arm and fund Hezbollah, the terror group in Lebanon, right on Israel's northern border, Iran's on soldiers within Syria, the Houthis in Yemen, and Hamas, of course, in Gaza. And what the world is failing to realize is that the West over the years has emboldened Iran, and we have noticed since 2021, U.S. sanctions on Iran were not strictly enforced and incentives were provided to sign a revised Iran nuclear deal with the West. However, this has all led to a major showdown now, not only with Israel, but a showdown between Iran and the West. Um, in fact, as we look at what's transpiring today, should citizens in Europe and the U.S. be concerned about Iran stoking the flames for a wider regional conflict? And what could the ramifications be for America and Europe? Well, American ships in the Gulf have already been attacked by Iran. So they've already, they've already declared war, essentially, on America by attacking their ships, the ships that are here in the region to protect the free-loving countries. And so, you know, Iran has, like I said, big ambitions here. They've got Hezbollah, they've got Hamas, they've ruined Lebanon, taken that over through Hezbollah, they've ruined Syria, they've taken over Afghanistan, uh, they've taken big parts of Iraq, they've got Qatar, they've got Turkey. And so, yes, uh, Iran is a very, very dangerous and what we have to be doing is working towards regime change in Iran. The people of Iran have risen against their leaders when they indiscriminately kill women and rape them on the street for not covering their hair. We have political prisoners. We have journalists in jail in Iran. The one thing we should be doing is not quelling their ambitions. It's regime change in Iran. You get rid of the mullahs in Iran and you get rid of 90% of the problems of the world. Right, correct. Uh, Fleur, in the Middle East, images from mainstream media have shown protests in streets of Jordan, Lebanon and other places, including Turkey, showing support for Hamas. However, the media underreported a very significant event of leaders in Riyadh, Saudi Arabia. In fact, leaders from the Middle East, specifically Gulf states, uh, joined by individuals from Europe and the United States, gathered to cast a vision for the future. Saudi Arabia hosted the Future Investment Initiative conference and I would like to quote two key leaders from the conference so on October 26 2023 Bahraini finance minister Sheikh Salman bin Khalifa al-Khalifa said I quote 
It's extremely important for the future of this region that we continue to build bridges and the future of this region and its stability and security is built on providing opportunity for all. And that is what will underpin a secure, safe region in which we are delivering prosperity for all and delivering hope and opportunity, unquote. And after attending the conference in Saudi Arabia, one of the architects of the Abraham Accords, Jared Kushner, had said this about Saudi Arabia's interest on the Abraham Accords via Fox Business News. He said, and I quote, I believe they would like to move forward with a deal with America and with Israel. The deal that's being discussed isn't just a partnership with Israel. It's also deepening their ties with America, which is very important. We have to keep in mind that if America is not close to Saudi Arabia, then they will go in the other direction to China. And so I think that the topic is being discussed, unquote. Uh, Fleur, in the midst of this war with Israel, which Israel is waging against the Iran-backed terrorist group Hamas, and Iran's continued efforts to aid, finance, and bolster terrorist groups such as Hezbollah in Lebanon and the Houthis in Yemen, it appears that key Arab leaders from Bahrain and Saudi Arabia are looking to the future and working towards peace and prosperity in the region. How important is for the U.S. leadership, both from the administration side and from Congress, to advance the Abraham Accords? Is this principled initiative is what Iran is afraid of, whereby Muslim nations will forge peace with Israel? So absolutely, I think that Iran had one main intention here, and that was to derail the Abraham Accords and to derail the peace between Saudi and Israel brokered by the United States. Because the Gulf countries that want peace and prosperity know that Iran is as much of a threat to them as it is to us. And the Abraham Accords essentially split the region between the countries that want peace and prosperity and the countries that want radicalism, destruction, and to take us back 500 years. Now, those countries understand that uh, Hamas is Muslim Brotherhood. Those countries have kicked out the Muslim Brotherhood from their countries, literally kicked them out. Saudi Arabia Arabia has gone through a number of years of removing radical elements from their society. And so they're not confused. Uh, what's really, really confusing is how in different Western countries, we see the populations are confused. But the Arab countries that want peace and prosperity know exactly what's going on here. Mm. Indeed, on the topic of education within Israel, primarily for Arab students, you were asked uh, just a few years ago by the Jewish News Syndicate about the greater concern. And you said, and I quote, only 40% of East Jerusalemite students were learning the Israeli Arab curriculum. 10,000 are in private schools and the remaining use the Palestinian United Nations uh, Relief and Works Agency Palestinian Authority curriculum, which are one and the same. And and you mentioned also you want to make the kids in your city are afforded the best education. And Madam Deputy Mayor Flor Hassan Nahum, what are the policy recommendations to address this indoctrination of Palestinian students that they are promoting hatred towards Jews? And should the United States, and specifically the U.S. Congress, which approves funds to the U.N. agency, change its approach for educating kids in the Arab communities. Yes, um, first of all, I'm not sure you said 40% or 14%, but it's only 14% of 
of East Jerusalem kids who are learning the Israeli Arab curriculum. Um, and so the vast majority are learning the UNRWA curriculum, which is essentially the Palestinian Authority curriculum, which Hamas thinks is good enough for them too. So kids in East Jerusalem um, and Judea and Samaria, West Bank, and Gaza are learning a curriculum of hate, incitement, indoctrination against Israel, against Jewish people. Even the most simple math questions are about war and about killing Israeli soldiers. And this curriculum is being funded by the entire world through UNRWA. Now, I've been shouting about this from the rooftops for five years, and I've been saying that I'm not advocating for the West to stop funding Palestinian education. What I'm advocating for is for them to give the funding on condition that the curriculum removes hatred. Mm -hmm. I don't need it to be a curriculum of peace and kumbaya. I need it to be a curriculum that takes out the, you know, the obsession with martyrdom the, the the fact that Israel is not even exists in their maps and the anti-Semitism and incitement. On top of that, the American government passed a law a number of years ago called the Taylor Force Act, which was supposed to stop any funding to the Palestinian Authority because we knew that they had this policy called pay to slay, which is essentially paying people, terrorists, and their families a life pension for every Jew that they kill. And the more you kill, the more the pension increases. That again is money that is being used by the Palestinian Authority to incentivize the killing of Jews. Who is giving money to the Palestinian Authority? The entire world. So I think that this problem and the fact that we have these horrible, disgusting policies on the on the part of both leaderships, not just Hamas, but also the Fatah leadership, is very simple. If the world stopped giving the Palestinians money, they would have no choice but to change their attitude and to understand something that they have not been telling their people, something they have been lying to their people about, and that is that Israel is not going away. The indoctrination in schools and the media and by leaders is this. One day we're going to kick them all out, we're going to throw them in the sea, and we're going to liberate all the land. And so the leadership has been cynically lying to their people for 75 years that one day they're going to get rid of us. And the world has been paying indirectly because I know that people want to do the right thing and they care. It comes from a good place. I don't think people understand this, but you're essentially funding an illusion that is creating murder. And so what I would say to all the world leaders is have a serious reckoning on how you want to bring Israel and the Palestinians closer to peace. And if you did one simple thing and cut all the funding tomorrow, the Palestinians would be forced to discuss real peace. Right, and we we talked, you and us, we met in Jerusalem this year, in January. We were together when we were actually praising the Abraham Accords and we were talking about the tangible moves and the next steps in order to include Palestinians and how Palestinians living in, the, in Judea and Samaria, which is also known as the West Bank, as well as in Gaza one day, can benefit from the Abraham Accords spearheaded by the U.S. and with more air 
Arab countries joining. As we already mentioned earlier, uh, it was Iran that was concerned about Saudi Arabia signing Abraham Accords with Israel. So when we think about it and, you know, just our meeting in January, looking at what happened since then, and in one of your interviews recently, you said that over 100 Israelis were murdered in the area of Judea and Samaria, also known as the West Bank, during last year. And this was before the horrific Hamas attacks on October 7. Yes. So the, yes. So the Israel's war, as you mentioned, but we need to stress it out. The Israel's war against Hamas is the war against radicalism, barbarism, and destruction. Absolutely. So that peace prosperity and opportunity can prevail in Israel and the Middle East. What is your message? How do we get there in a shorter period of time? Well, first of all, everybody understands and they say it and they declare it and it's in their charter. Hamas is not looking for a two-state solution here. They're not looking for some type of peaceful resolution, whatever that looks like. They're looking to destroy Israel and kill Jews, not just here, but all around the world. They say it in their charter. And so if we ever are going to have any hope of peace, the only way, the way that the United States and, the, and, their, and their coalition had to destroy ISIS, the only way we're going to get anywhere close to peace is if we remove the cancer that is Islamic radicalism here in our territory, here in the region. And in America, mm -hmm. Madam Deputy Mayor, we are witnessing protests against Israel and the Jewish community at the nation's top universities, uh, centers of higher education. Institutions such as Harvard, Cornell, and other institutions are experiencing student protests. Some images are certainly a throwback to the days of the 1930s in Germany. And we also, on the European front, are seeing Jewish stars now being painted on homes in Paris and graffiti on U.S. college campuses targeting Jews. What is your message to the leadership of these universities in America and to students who are protesting against Israel and the Jewish community within the United States? Well, I think that most universities are really very confused. They don't understand that one thing is to have a protest on an ideological political cause, which is, okay, you, you, you're in favor of the Palestinian people. By the way, we're all in favor of the Palestinian people having better leadership than what they've had. But when you start hearing, gas the Jews, kill the Jews, uh, then it's becoming a pogrom. Mm. And if universities are not able to protect their Jewish students, then first of all, the government should stop funding those universities. Mm. Absolutely. And while we're talking about this here, there is actually two wars taking place. One is the ground war that is taking place in Gaza at the moment, and also the media war, the international media war that is taking place. In fact, uh, we're seeing mainstream media certainly uh, sending out these images from Gaza. Uh, they're less and less focused on October 7. And Floor, what can be done from the Israeli side or from U.S. supporters of Israel in Congress and other places that really take time to articulate the truth? Because it's one thing to wage this war against a terror group, but it's another thing to influence the 
arena of public opinion, uh, which certainly impacts our election season heading up into 2024. Yes. I mean, look, I can tell you I'm, I'm on the front lines of that war, on the media war. I do a lot of press um, in English and Spanish because I'm a native Spanish speaker as well. And I definitely have seen the sentiments turn against us. But I think the best thing we can do is also be encouraged by the fact that polls that have been taken recently, have found that the support in general in the public in uh, the United States and the UK is overwhelmingly pro-Israel because I think that people, people are not stupid. Mm. And when you see kidnapped babies and raped women, most people instinctively understand that that's, that is evil. And so I'm pleased to say that the polling that we've seen, that friends of mine have been involved with, show overwhelming support. What we have to keep doing is making sure that people understand the truth and that people understand that this is a very simple choice. Are you with the countries that want to destroy the free world, human rights, women's rights, rights of minorities, or are you with the people who are defending those rights? And I think people understand that this is a pretty binary choice and that Israel and America are on the side of good. And we just have to keep plugging that message. Let's not get complicated. It's very simple. People who are bad take hostages that are babies and kill them. And people who are good protect their people. And that's the message. Right. And in that context, we need to actually address a very dangerous narrative coming from the United Nations. Uh, because uh, at the UN Security Council meeting just recently, uh, UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres said, and I quote, It is important to also recognize the attacks by Hamas did not happen in a vacuum. The Palestinian people have been subjected to 56 years of suffocating occupation. They have seen their land steadily devoured by settlements and plagued by violence. Their economy stifled, their people displaced and their homes demolished." Unquote. So we can see the United Nations carries certain weight. And this statement can be parroted by any country member of the United Nations and it already has been used by Congresswoman Tlaib here in America. So what can we do about this dangerous rhetoric coming from the United Nations? And should we cut the funding to the United Nations if they continue to support anti-Israeli sentiments? Well, first of all, Gutierrez has firstly shown uh, complete ignorance on the history of the conflict. Because in 2005, we left uh, the Gaza region. We uprooted eight to 10,000 Jewish Israelis who left behind beautiful settlements with hot houses and agricultural innovation. We left it all. We pulled them out in the hope that this would give the Palestinian leadership the beginning of what could have been a beautiful state. Uh, they had the best shorelines in, in, in the country. Um, they could have turned it into Dubai. They could have turned it into Singapore. And instead, they turned it into Beirut. And so if Guterres doesn't even understand that we haven't been there for almost 20 years, then he's plainly ignorant. The thing that I will agree with him is that this hasn't happened in the vacuum. But the, 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 the context is wrong. The, this has happened in the context of his organization, the UN, funding UNRWA mm. that indoctrinates children to kill Jews. 
So he was right about the vacuum, but he was wrong about the context. But, you know, what can you expect from the UN, who is today, in fact, appointing Iran on their social welfare committee? Mm. And last year, appointed Iran to the Women's Rights Committee. They've since been, of course, removed because of a campaign done by some close friends of mine. But they've, their moral compass has gone a long time ago. They are an organization that whitewashes genocidal dictatorships in this aura of democracy uh, where none of these people believe in democracy. And Gutierrez has shown to be callous, ignorant, and completely, completely without any type of moral clarity. And so that's why the Israeli government called for his resignation and he should resign. He should be in fact ashamed of himself. Mm -hmm. And he is going to cause a lot of Jews being persecuted, not just here, but across the world. Uh, in fact, uh, as we conclude our program uh, for this weekend, what are your final thoughts and what is your message to the American public, to American elected officials and those standing with Israel? Uh, what more can be done? And uh, we'd just like to give you this opportunity to share your message uh, to our engaged listeners. So first of all, I want to start with gratitude and thank uh, the American public for their unequivocal support of Israel, the good force here against the Hamas terrorists and all of the genocidal fundamentalists around the world who are siding with the Hamas terrorists. What I can say is that we in Israel are very grateful uh, and we in Israel are the first line of defense because what happens here will have an impact on what happened there. America already got a taste of that with 9-11. These are the same savages that they had over there in 9-11. And if they don't help us now, they will get there again. And so we thank them for the support and we hope that they continue to see good versus evil. Thank you so much. Yeah. Mm, this weekend you. on America's Roundtable, we're joined by Flor Hassan Nahum, who serves as the Deputy Mayor of Jerusalem. And we thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule and joining us. And we certainly stand with the people of Israel. We stand with the Jewish state of Israel. Thank you, Flor. We stand with Israel. Thank you, Joel. Thank you, Natasha. Thank you so much to both of you. This is America's Roundtable from Washington, D.C., an initiative of the U.S.-based think tank International Leaders Summit in partnership with Lancer Broadcasting Corporation and Supertalk Mississippi Media. Thank you for joining us on America's Roundtable. I'm Joel Adinsami, your co-host, joined by economist Natasha Sardorch, co-founder of International Leaders Summit and the Jerusalem Leaders Summit. America's Roundtable guests include leading voices from business, government, media, energy, technology, healthcare, and the broad policy arena. Subscribe to America's Roundtable on Apple Podcasts, Amazon, and Spotify. Visit America's Roundtable at americasrt.com. americasrt.com. Follow us on Facebook, America's Roundtable, and Twitter at americasrt. We invite donors and advertisers to reach us by visiting our website, americasrt.com. 